So thank you once again, Carol, um, Ivan, Lily, uh, for uh, giving us the opportunity, Philippe and me, to uh, present here. We're very honored and we're very happy that we can do um, a book launch, basically, a book presentation here at the Freud Museum, the Anna Freud um, House, um, a book that we think is important for everybody engaged in the study and the practice of psychoanalysis, and beyond that also in other domains as well. After all, we present not only a new translation of Freud's 1905 free essays on the theory of sexuality, but actually the first translation of that 1905 edition in English. Now, before we uh, proceed with highlighting some of the most important ideas in the text, let me first say a few things about the history of the project. Um, so the idea is that I give now a general overview of and some introduction into um, the book project, and Philippe will address some uh, particular issues and also some translation issues that came up during the project. And afterwards, of course, you are free to... Uh, ask questions and uh, debate with us. So Philippe um, van Hout and I started this project of rereading the three essays about three years ago, basically from a, let's say, philosophical and also psychoanalytic interest. At that moment, there was already a prehistory that led to this project. Philippe had already intensively worked on Freud's early theories of hysteria and sexuality, on the non-oidipal character of Freud's early theories and on the Freudian uh, method as a pato-analysis of human existence. I come back to that term later on. I had already worked on Freud's theories on the sense of guilt and on his writings on religion and culture in general, in which this sense of guilt is a predominant factor, as you probably all know. Our cooperation has its roots in uh, the Freud Research Group, which is a kind of an informal work group and a subdivision of the International Society for Psychoanalysis and Philosophy. This event gives me the opportunity to make some, uh, make some, say some things about this beautiful society, which you should all join if you're interested in the subject of psychoanalysis and philosophy. Uh, we are both members of the Freud Research Group, um, and this group has set itself as a task simply to closely read and discuss Freud texts in the original German language. And that is where our project took off. Um, that is a rereading of the first version of the Drei Abhandlungen, so from scratch. And later on in the project, Ulrike Kistner joined. She cannot be present here. She's the invisible third person. Um, but she is uh, the translator, basically, of the text. She is a native speaker in English and German, and she lives and works in Pretoria, and that's also the reason why she cannot be here tonight. So a reading of the first edition from 1905, a version that has only 80 pages, much less than the final version from 1924, in which Freud had inserted new theoretical material that, according to himself, were merely, merely additions completing the theory, but in fact contained new material that fundamentally disrupted the original ideas and perspectives. The common reading of the three essays 
thus includes the passages that we all know from the 1924 edition. The, the passages on the sexual development, on the infantile sexual researches and theories, on narcissism, on ambivalence, on the biphasic object choice, and on the drive and libido theory. As if these passages were already present in Freud's thought in 1905. Of course, one could argue that from Strachey's translation of the 1924 version, we can easily reconstruct the first version, since all changes and additions are marked, or almost all changes and additions. But the fact is that nobody does this. The fact that the first edition was never translated in English is significant here. Scholars usually took the 1924 authorized edition as their starting point. So what Philippe and I did, although it seems the most obvious of all procedures, namely reading the first edition of a text, proved to be quite an adventurous undertaking, which in the end, and which in the end reveals quite a different text than the final edition from 1924, and thus also sheds a completely new view and new light on the development of Freud's theory of sexuality in particular, but also Freudian theory in general. Hence, our project contributes to a new and, in our view, better understanding of the development of Freudian theory. The kind of issues he was working on in 1905, the, qui- the kind of questions and problems that emerged in that context, and the subsequent theoretical decisions that were then made in the years after the publication of the text. The project is, first of all, about the contextualization of the free essays. Contextualization in the historical and systematical sense of the word. As regards the historical aspect, there is Freud's fundamental change of perspective relative to his uh, predecessors in psychiatry and sexology. Notably, eminent authors such as Richard von Kraft-Ebing, Albert Moll, and to a lesser extent also Havelock Ellis. Here we already have to make an important note. The 1905 Free Essays is first of all a remarkable text within the Freudian oeuvre, as it is the first text in which Freud adopts the conceptual framework from that psychiatric and sexuological literature. The concept of trip, drive, or as Strachey would translate, instinct, thus enters Freud's vocabulary, but also related issues such as the drive's object and aim And we should also not forget that Freud adopts Kraft Ebing's <coughs> classification of the perversions in 1905. Until 1905, Freud basically used a conceptual framework that came from neurology. And the free essays we can witness, in the free essays, we can witness Freud trying to bring the two conceptual frameworks together, which does not always work. So to a certain point, there is continuity with an existing body of theoretical concepts and clinical material. But in the free essays, Freud starts from a fundamental critique of the premises from which Kraft Ebing and others had developed their theories. Notably, the conception of infantile sexuality is articulated by Freud in sharp contrast to his predecessors, who had made no principal distinction between a sexual drive and an instinct for procreation 
that is both natural, normal, and functional. It is this conception of normal and natural organization of human sexuality in the service of procreation that made it possible for them to define the perversions as abnormal and unnatural, hence pathological, sexual activities. Kraft Ebing presented the following definition of perversion. I quote, With opportunity for the natural satisfaction of the sexual instinct, every expression of it that does not correspond with, with the purpose of nature, that is, propagation, must be regarded as perverse. In other words, every manifestation of a sexual drive that is non-procreative is a perversion. It is this criterion of the natural function of the drive that links the four main perversions to each other. After all, sadism, masochism, fetishism and homosexuality have nothing else in common but their non-procreativity. In the three essays, Freud radically deconstructs this model by firstly thinking through infantile sexuality, something that was hardly possible in the writings of his predecessors since they had linked sexuality to the development of the sexual organs in puberty. And secondly, thinking through the relation between perverse and strict procreative sexual activities. By the example of the phenomenon of kissing, amongst others, Freud argues that what his predecessors would have had to classify as a perverse activity was actually part of normal sexual life. So what if sexual life was always already composed of perverse building blocks? And what if indeed infantile sexuality could not be described in functional terms? This leads Freud to adopt the notion of the polymorphous perverse nature of the sexual drive. Since the human sexual drive is not, not naturally organized by an inherent norm or according to some innate functional principle, there is indeed nothing but a variety of sexual activities and orientations in which there is no purely formal, normal or absolutely abnormal sexuality. Turning the theories of his predecessors upside down was truly a, a radical idea. And we should take this radicality serious, as it is supported by another crucial aspect of the theory. According to Freud, the sexual drive is without an object. That is, it expresses itself in a non-intersubjective way and does not in any way depend on the presence of an object. According to Freud, infantile sexuality is pleasure, and basically nothing but pleasure, derived from the excitation of bodily zones such as the skin or mucous membranes. Sexuality is a physical, pleasurable activity originating from what he calls the drive, but he mentions it between brackets, and the excitability of erogenous zones. Freud does, does say that this pleasure is first discovered in breast-sucking, which seems to imply that sexuality implies the presence of an object. But this is, strictly speaking, not the case. The breast is merely a thing by, which, uh, by means of which the child discovers that sucking is pleasure, pleasurable. The warm milk creates a pleasurable excitation that the infant will later try to reproduce. Breasts or milk bottles 
are only instrumental in the discovery of autoerotic pleasure. The objects of, uh, involved in sensual sucking are not substitute objects for a supposedly absent first object. It is only in puberty that the erogenous zones become reinvested from an adult object-related sexuality through which the breast through which the breast can now acquire a meaning it didn't have in childhood. Infantile sexuality is and remains autoerotic, that is, again, without an object. Perverse building blocks and autoerotic pleasure thus characterize infantile sexuality, not the first object choices or an always already present maternal object that keeps sexual fantasies and activities going. Given the conceptualization of infantile sexuality as autoerotic pleasure, it should not come as a surprise that in the 1905 edition of the text we find no reference to the Oedipus complex whatsoever. For the Oedipus complex primarily consists of the positive and negative sexual ties towards the child's parents. It presupposes, therefore, that infantile sexuality is not strictly autoerotic. But in 1905, infantile sexuality is. The Oedipus complex is therefore, in that text, a theoretical impossibility. And this has far-reaching consequence for any evaluation of the development of Freudian theory. If the Oedipus complex is a theoretical impossibility in 1905, that means that the popular reading of Freud having allegedly discovered the complex in his self-analysis in the late 1890s, indeed may need to be corrected. And we would have to raise the question why Freud found it necessary to introduce the Oedipus complex as a complex from about 1910 onwards. In that period, Freud had shifted attention to the study of obsessional neurosis, phobia and psychosis, a study from which he hoped to find both confirmations of his theories and answers to some theoretical riddles. The idea that infantile sexuality might not be without object is only first introduced in the case of Little Hans from 1909, and it is no coincidence that this triggers Freud's first explorations of the Oedipus complex as a complex in 1910. (coughs) The 1905 free essays can be seen as Freud's last major text on hysteria and is for that reason closely related to the Dora case, also published in 1905, and all the previous writings on hysteria. Our reading, amongst others, shows that there is much continuity here, also with regards to the issue of seduction, which plays a very important role (coughs) in Freud's early theories. According to the popular reading, Freud would have abandoned his seduction theory in 1897 and from then on moved towards an Oedipal theory. Our reading of the free essay shows that in fact the text is still in continuity with earlier ideas on the role of seduction, claiming that seduction is widespread and an important factor in hysteria, but it is not a necessary condition in the etiology of hysteria. So far far there is thus a Correction to earlier claims. 
Our project aims at thinking through the philosophical implications of Freud's 1905 theory of sexuality. The most important issue here concerns Freud's distinction between what we call, and Philippe will talk more about it, two regimes of sexuality. On the one hand, there is infantile sexuality, which is polymorphous, perverse, and without object. On the other hand, there is pubertal and adult sexuality, which is normally organized according to cultural norms and put in the service of procreation. Of course, we should add here that this 1905 theory has some major problems. First of all, the fact that Freud has difficulties to explain the transition from infantile to pubertal sexuality. Also, as in the case of sadistic and voyeuristic components of the infantile sexuality, it is rather difficult to maintain that infantile sexuality is completely without an, without an object, as Freud claims. In short, things are more complicated and nuanced. But one thing is clear. The popular opinion of Freud discovering the Oedipus complex in his self-analysis in the late 1890s, and from then on thinking within Oedipal schemata, is wrong. Our reading of Freud thus connects to positions that question heteronormativity. The issue of normativity is also important in another respect, and this concerns Freud's methodology. Whereas in the later versions of the text, Freud will introduce a developmental approach in order to explain the transition from infantile to adult sexuality, a process of, you could say, heteronormalization of sexuality, in the 1905 version, an other approach can be found, an approach that we call the pato-analytical approach. <coughs> and this indicates the idea that the human sexuality can best, and maybe only, be studied from the perspective of the psychopathologies, more concrete in this case, from the perspective of hysteria and the perverse building blocks of sexuality. And that concludes my general introduction in the project and in uh, our reading of the text. And I give the floor to Philippe, who will address some uh, particular issues. Um, I would also like, first, first of all, like to thank uh, Carol, Ivan, Lily, and the Freud Museum for the possibility to present uh, our book and project uh, here in London. Um, I'm really grateful for that. And we are. The title of my short intervention uh, is Translating Treep in the first edition of, the, of Freud's three essays on the theory of sexuality, problems, and perspectives. So I will limit myself in the first instance to a crucial problem for the translation of the three essays, the question how to translate Treep into, um, into English, which is a classical problem. As you know, Strachey is very often criticized and for understandable and, in the end, good reasons uh, to have translated Treep by instinct. So I will address that problem. And I will then, in a second move, try to, to, to show how, how, what I, how what I or what we have to say and what Ulrike has to say uh, on this problem relates to the problem of uh, heteronormativity, which is, in a certain sense, also in, uh, theoretically interesting because it, 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 I'll, I'll try to, this thing, this problem indicates how translating problems and theoretical systematic problems uh, are intrinsically 
limited and that you cannot escape uh, this type of, 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 uh, of problems. So when discussing uh, Strachey's translation of Freud, the first problem that pops up is almost inevitably his translation of the German Trieb by instinct. Instincts, so the standard argument goes, have a predetermined object that is given to them by nature to accomplish their biological function. Whereas this wouldn't be the case with Triebe that don't have such a pre-given object. Since Freud fundamentally questions the idea of human sexuality as a biological function that aims at reproduction, Strachey should have translated Trieb in the context where it refers to sexuality, human sexuality, for example, by drive, in order to clearly mark this difference. With regard to self-preservation, instinct would have been a possible translation. Indeed, there is or seems to be. Things uh, could be much more complicated than we think, but, but bon, that's another discussion. So there is or there seems to be a much more intrinsic link between self-preservation and its objects than between human sexuality and its object. Furthermore, this would imply that a treep, that treep drive is typically human. Indeed, animal sexuality is in this line of thought quite often, rightly or wrongly, considered as a reproductive function. But are things really that simple? In the way I just formulated the problem, it has a very Lacanian sound, if you want. Lacan stresses over and over again the non-biological character of the drive, pulsion, derive, and of desire that is in humans an effect of language. Lacan, but also, for instance, Laplanche, stresses the passage in which, the passage in which Freud claims that a trip has no natural object. This passage, as you know, and, and I'll come back to that later, is virtually the conclusion of Freud's analysis of homosexuality, what he calls inversion uh, in, in the three essays. So Lacan stresses the passage, in which, the passage in which Freud claims that the trip has no natural object and concludes from this that trip is not instinct, that does have a natural object, and hence should be translated differently, pulsion, derive, rather than instinct. All of this implies that the decision not to translate, not to translate trip by instinct is made on the basis of a specific reading of the text, and as I will argue, in line with the translation, of a problematic privileging of certain or specific passages. Before debating this translation, interpretation, because they go together, let me first make a quick remark on Freud's use of the terms trip and instinct in the three essays. First of all, in Freud's days, the German trip wasn't opposed to what we today call instinct. Instinct. Freud uses trip for both human beings and animals, and he doesn't restrict it to sexuality. Quite on the contrary, already in the opening sentences of his text, he speaks of a trip nach Nährungsaufnahme. So, an instinct to take in food. Drive to take in food. So, trip nach Nährungsaufnahme. And he further mentions the geschlechtstrieb, sexual instinct, that humans and animals have in common. Furthermore, the word instinct doesn't occur in the text, 
or rather, it is only used once as an adjective. Hence, we can safely assume that the three instinct disting distinction and debate, as I just uh, introduced it, as such was, re was not really an issue that explicitly interested, interested Freud very much, or that, it had as mu or that it had as much weight in the articulation of his theory. But does this mean that this distinction is simply without an object, or that it has no conceptual meaning at all? To answer this question, I will turn to the first edition of the three essays, which is the one under consideration, and I will comment on some key decisions um, and the arguments to make them that Ulrike, Hermann, and I made in the first English translation of this text. In doing so, I will concentrate on a major distinction Freud makes in the three essays and that passed unnoticed in most translations, or, more importantly, and more concretely, that is rendered invisible in most translations. I will argue more concretely that the, that the, that the 1905 edition of the three essays, and Hermann already um, uh, anticipated and mentioned that, that so that the 1905 edition of the three essays is not so much centered around the distinction between instinct, instinct and trieb, but rather around the distinction between geschlechtstrieb and sexualtrieb. This distinction is completely lost in the standard edition because uh, Strachey translates both terms by sexual instinct. So in the English, through the English tra tra translation, you, you don't have as, uh, uh, access to that distinction. And it's not just to the English uh, translation. The Dutch translation is in a certain sense even worse, if you want, because in Dutch you could quite easily translate geslechtstrieb by geslachtsdrift and sexualtrieb by Sexuele drift. So there is no problem in German. In, in Dutch, you could just keep the German terms. But just to, to, to indicate uh, so how, in, how, how it works, so to speak, so the, the translator, Willem Oranje, now and then you, uh, changes, translates sexual drift by geslachtsdrift, and now and then by sexuele drift, and the same with sexual, with, with geslachtsdrift. So he clearly indicates the difference, the distinction has no meaning, has no importance. So that's what, and it's that interpretation. We, we go against. So I will argue that the three essays is, around, is centered around the distinction between Geschlechtstriebs and Sexualtrieb. This distinction is completely lost in the standard edition and in other translations like the Dutch translation and the older French translations. In the new French translation, that's no longer the case. The second distinction resembles the one between instinct and trieb, but is not just identical to it. It should further be read in relation to the term geschlechtsleben that is linked to it. So let me first, uh, before, and then I will go, so first explain a bit this difference between geschlechtstrieb and sexualtrieb, and then on, on the basis of that exp ex explanation, I will go to the heteronormativity discussion. So let me first quickly explain this distinction by referring to the semantic contexts in which the terms involved are used. Indeed, Freud tends to systematically use, that's our claim, geschlechtstrieb in semantic contexts in which he is talking about the poetic fable, as he calls it, that claims that sexuality is an instinct that is absent in childhood and that aims at reproduction. Freud also uses the term more generally with regard to, ob to adult object-related genitalized sexuality so that it also covers inversion or homosexuality. That's for Geschlechtstrieb. Sexualtrieb, 
on the contrary, is mainly used where it comes to thematizing non-reproductive forms of sexuality in which the genital zone doesn't play a leading role, more particularly the perversions, or that are in principle autoerotic or own object, without an object, that is, infantile sexuality. The latter characterizes, uh, auto, being autoerotic, characterizes infantile sexuality that for the same reason is non-phantasmatical and can be described in purely psych, uh, psych, physiological terms. Search for non-functional, non-functional bodily pleasure. That's where he uses, that's also that's the second place where he systematically tends to use sexual trip uh, and for the perversions. In this sense, Geslechtstrieb and sexualtrieb refer to two clearly defined and opposing sexual regimes, if you want. An infantile one and an adult one, as uh, uh, Hermann also already uh, indicated. So it's, for instance, just to give an example, in the first, the first chapter on sexual aberrations, as Freud called them, the first part, in the first part, which is on homosexuality, his analysis of homosexuality, there he used consistently geslechtstrieb. It's genitalized. And then the second part of the first chapter is on the perversions that are no longer uh, centered around the genital zone, and there Freud almost exclusively uses sexual trip. The opposition between these two regimes structures, uh, we think, Freud's 1905 text. The exclusive emphasis on the passage, on the variability of the object that I already mentioned, the one Lacan uses, to the exclusive, exclusive emphasis on the passage on the variability of, ob- of the object of the drive that I already mentioned, tends to ex- obscure this opposition as I thematized it. Indeed, indeed, this passage of the variability of the object is further linked to other passages that were, that were added in 1915, that is, after the publication of uh, instinct, and, instinct and its vicissitudes, Added in 19, uh, instinct and its vicissitudes, according to which the drive is directed from the outset to the object as such. As a result, but I have no time to develop this idea here uh, in great detail, we can come back to that in the discussion, the emphasis shifts in the later texts from an opposition between sexual trip and geslechtstrieb as two sexual regimes, to a distinction between instinct and drive, that is, between animality and human sexuality. And so, uh, from 1915 on, there is a kind of shift from a structural opposition between two regimes to a developmental approach, a developmental understanding uh, of sexuality, a developmental understanding of the relation of the drive to its changing object, which is there from the beginning, and then progressively becomes... A heteronormative, a heterosexual one. And so, but there is an object from the beginning. So, it is this. So, what is from 1915? Now, from 1915 on, uh, thematized is much more the development from this early object relation to the later adult one, in co- in, in contradiction or in, in opposition to the, the first text in which it is a matter of two oppositional regimes. So, if it is crucial not to obscure. The distinction between sexual trip and geslechtstrieb in a translation. How can we translate these terms? Because that was the problem I started from. Since Freud never uses instinct in the three essays, although it does and did exist in German, it seems reasonable not to use instinct as a translation for trip. So that's, of course, Lacan is right. Drive seems to be the better option, 
Also because it keeps the link with the body and bodily existence. As far as geslecht is concerned, it is worth noting, as a kind of preliminary remark, that the sex-gender distinction that we are so familiar with doesn't play a role in Freud's text. The distinction, this distinction was only introduced in the 50s and 60s, as you know, uh, of the last century. In the word geslecht, then, the sex-gender distinction doesn't play a role yet, at least not explicitly and not in the way we know it. Also, there is no equivalent, and part of the problem comes from there, there is no equivalent word for geslecht in English. In contradistinction, for instance, to Dutch, where geslacht is the equivalent. In light, of, in light of what I said earlier in, in this talk, in my talk, Geschlechtstrieb refers to the object-centered genital sexuality, and so uh, genital drive seems the better option. So we translated Geschlechtstrieb by genital drive, not by coital, coital drive, which also uh, was mentioned at some point, and according to some of our uh, some of my, our friends who are stronger English than we are would also would also have been a possibility, but uh, or an option. But it excludes inversion in the context of which Freud also speaks of Geschlechtstrieb. So that excludes the possibility of translating Geschlechtstrieb by coital drive. It's it's genital, but not not necessarily heterosexual. Sexual trip, sexual trip, then obviously can be translated as sexual drive. It is true that genital drive can appear questionable in places where Freud uses Geschlechtstrieb as a pars pro toto, so to indicate a life of sexuality in this, in human sexuality in a whole. We translated uh, Geschlechtsleben, that also refers to human sexuality as such, as sex life. Sex life expresses quite well the generic meaning of Geschlechtsleben, of Geschlechtsleben. And we used sex life and not sexual life in these instances, although the latter would have been possible too, in order to safeguard the opposition between Schlechtstrieb and Sexualstrieb that we consider fundamental to the understanding of the first edition. I already mentioned that Freud sometimes uses Geschlechtstrieb as a pars pro toto for the whole of human uh, uh, sexual life. We could have opted for sex drive in cases where Geschlechtstrieb is a, is a pars pro toto, but that would have meant that we translate the same German word by two different English words. That is not impossible, but it wouldn't have been very handsome from the perspective of the translation. On top of that, and more importantly, we thought that changing the translation of Geschlechtstrieb, depending on the context in which it occurs, risks to blur the structural distinction between two regimes of sexuality, adult and infantile, that determines in many ways this first edition. It is clear that the absence of a clear English equivalent for Geschlecht obliges here to look for a compromise. Since the context, in most cases, leaves no doubt on the generic use of Geschlechtstrieb, for instance, where Freud writes that the sexual trip is its first moment or phase, we think that it isn't too problematic. So let me end then. Um, that's as far as the, the discussion on the trip instinct uh, debate. But let me make now. Let me end now with some remarks in relation to this discussion, the one I just presented. Um, so some remarks on the, on on. On, or so, or to, let me let me uh, let me say introduce some links between this discussion and the problem of heterosexuality of heteronormativity critique of heteronormativity in the 1905 edition. 
Uh, Hermann already mentioned Freud's patroanalytic term. So patroanalysis means studying the human, human existence from the perspective of psychopathology. Now Freud connects this patroanalytic turn or patroanalytic approach immediately with the idea, the first edition, that sexuality has no object that is ascribed to it by nature. And furthermore, that the drives only tends toward, towards pleasure. That is, patroanalysis here means that it is the different perversions that inform us about the different building blocks of sexuality. And what Freud learns from them is that sexuality is constructed out of partial drives, oral, anal, and so on, that find their locus in the corresponding erogenous zones. These partial drives only pursue pleasure and are fundamentally autoerotic, which means, as I already said, that they do not aim at an object, or more precisely, that their relation to any and every object has no essential meaning. It is exclusively the capacity of the object to provide pleasure that is at stake here. In the 1905 edition, and this is important and crucial, and it's linked to, to this whole debate, of course, as you immediately see, the different erogenous zones are not situated in a chronological or teleological sequence. So we all know that the classical history, you know, it, it's, it's oral, anal, phallic, genital, and then there are th th these different phases are put in a temporal, teleological sequence. Well, this is not the case in the first edition. There is one passage in the 1905 edition of the three essays that, seem to, that seems to contradict this idea. This is where Freud writes with respect to infantile genital masturbation, for which hardly anyone escapes, that it is in line with what he calls nature's purpose, the absicht der Natur. Nature purpose to prepare the genital zone for determining role it will play, it will have to play in later life. When confronted in 1912 by a member of the famous Wednesday evening meetings with the fact that this would introduce a teleological motive to his text, and that nothing prepared for such a motive, Freud immediately gave in and changed his text accordingly. From the edition of 1915 onwards, the reference to nature's purpose is left out, which is in, in agreement with the whole tendency of the 1905 edition. From the edition, uh, yeah, sexuality has no natural object, and even more radically, there cannot be a primacy of the genital zone that is grounded in the nature of sexuality either. That is the 1905 edition, of course, that is a completely different view than the one we are familiar with from later texts. Freud is here much more radical than many of our contemporary psychoanalysts. He not only maintains that we all have perverse fantasies, which is fair enough, but also, and this is more fundamental, it deconstructs the essential presuppositions that would allow us to identify a separate category of so-called sexual perverts. This is what Freud says in 1905. Or rather, this is what Freud says in the first two chapters of the 1905 edition of the three essays. In the third edition, entitled Transformations of Puberty, Freud seems, and that will be my last uh, point, seems to defend a completely different position. Here, for instance, Freud writes the following. I uh, quote, Writers on the subject have asserted 
that the necessary precondition of a whole number of perverse fixations lies in an innate weakness of the sexual instinct. In this form, the view seems to me untenable. It makes sense, however, if what is meant is a constitutional weakness of one particular factor in the sexual instinct, namely the genital zone. A zone which takes over the function of combining the separate sexual activities for the purposes of reproduction. For if the genital zone is weak, this combination, which is required to take place in puberty, is bound to fail, and the strongest of other components of sexuality will continue its activity as a perversion. How heteronormative can one possibly be? But then the question is, how can we reconcile this statement with what Freud has already claimed in the first two chapters of the book we are discussing, the first edition? From a historical point of view, it is patently obvious that the sexologist to whom Freud is referring said exactly the same thing as what Freud himself is proposing. Namely, that that perversion must be linked to a weakness of the genital zone. So Freud implicitly puts himself once again in line with the sexologist he started criticizing on the first page of the three essays. But this quotation implies, obviously, a teleological and functional view of sexuality, which was precisely the view that Freud sought to reject in the first two chapters. Davidson is therefore uh, quite justified in stating that in light of his own argumentation, in the two first chapters, Freud could only have said the following. I quote again, and I adapt, and I, I, I have it from, from I, it's, it's from Arnold Davidson. For if the genital zone is weak, this combination, which often takes place at puberty, instead of which is required to take place in puberty, because this, this indeed implies a functional or a teleological interpretation. So, for if, so, I repeat, for if the genital zone is weak, this combination, which often takes place at puberty, will fail. And the strongest of other components of sexuality will continue its activity. Instead of, will continue its activity as a perversion. The latter implies that there exists something of a perverse identity that can be ascribed described as such. We, have to de- we will have to deal with Freud's inconsistencies, if you allow me. But returning to the first edition of the three essays, and to the first edition of his early texts in general, might allow us to rediscover a less conservative and heteronormative Freud than the one we are used to. Already for this reason, it is worthwhile, I think, I hope, I hope, I have, we have uh, convinced you that already for this reason it is worthwhile to re-edit and retranslate these first editions. I thank you. Okay, so uh, that was quite dense, I thought, and uh, really rich. Um, um, what we got, we've got some time, 20 minutes or so for discussion, and uh, I'm just going to really throw it 
open if there's any questions. I was going to actually ask John if he wanted to say anything first. Thank you. Um, I th thank you very much for your, your presentations which, uh, I, I, and your arguments, which I, I welcome very much. Um, I, sp I suppose I wanted to um, introduce some other Freud terms um, to avoid um, the, distinct, the crucial distinction you were making between um, um, between um, the, 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 in the new regime, or the, what you were describing as the regime of the 1905 uh, and that opposition, and particularly what, what, what is often called the drive, drive instinct distinction, um, that, that, that can harden into a, uh, you know, a mutual opposition, whereas um, a, a term like unleaning, leaning on, Freud is obviously trying to think of how, to, having made the distinction, how do I then relate the two things that are distinguished to each other, or, or how do they relate in, in human sexual development? Um, and Laplanche has kind of um, uh, tracked him down kind of remorselessly, like Sherlock Holmes, to, 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 because different conceptual slides that take place. There are at least three, three leaning on schemas in different texts of Freud's. But he is trying to think how they're articulated together and the notion that the, um, the drive leans on the instinctual function and then deviates from it at a certain point, mm -hmm. um, I think is really crucial. So one doesn't end up with that crucial distinction hardening too much yeah. into, into a, mutual, uh, a mutual exclusion. Whereas the, the, the problem for Freud is to think but the simultaneously their distinction um, and their coincidence uh, and then their differentiation in, in reality, as it were. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. There is, there is one uh, uh, remark I, that, that comes to my mind when, when uh, because of course um, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, fond of this Laplacian approach, I would say. But there is one problem, of course, that is when the, the, the passages you refer on, you, you refer to Laplace says that. So that, 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 that the, the, the child discovers sexual pleasure in relation, in, 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 in the relation of the, um, how do you say that, uh, satisfaction of the autoconservative drives. It is in the relation of being fed, uh, in relation of the act of being fed that it discovers sexual pleasures and that pleasure, and then it, so that's anlehnung, it, it, it is leaning on. Uh, autoconservative uh, self-preservation drives and then in a second moment uh, Laplanche says the, the, sec the sexuality or this pleasure is looked for its own sake and Freud, Laplanche says well that's the moment when it becomes when sexuality becomes uh, independent from the auto, from self-preservation and it's also the moment when sexuality becomes phantasmatical that's where our uh, interpretation uh, is different from Laplanche's because uh, we would claim that, because we would claim that uh, that infantile sexuality for Freud, in these early texts, eh, I mean, of course, it's always we are always talking of the 1905 edition and and the, the text of the same period, in their first editions, um, that there Freud uh, thinks of sexuality as being without an object and hence also without not without fant without fantasy, so it's, that's why I called it a pure pure. So that that's why I said. Uh, infantile sexuality in this text can be described as a pu in purely physiological terms. Interestingly enough, 
is Freud right? And then, of course, that's, of course, uh, where, where we can meet, I think. Is Freud right? Well, that's, that's the second uh, thing. Um, Laplanche, in his, one of his last texts, says, well, actually, I think that Freud should have said that the, uh, that the infantile sexuality is phantasmatical, but actually he didn't. And uh, so I was wrong in my interpretation, and he was wrong in saying that it is without a, without a fantasy. Um, so, and I think that's of course the, the the debate. But I think in in so and so there is a, there are two things we have to this we have to to separate. I think on the one hand, what is Freud saying in this text, and I think he's making a quite strong distinction about two two uh, two regimes. Without, and that's of course where your where your question I think aims at. Without being able to explain, yeah, but then how? Uh, how does this? How does you go from one regime to the other? And he can only explain it. He does it in the ter- it, it, well. It's not an explanation in the ter- in the in the third chapter. He just he just assumes that at some point this autoriotic regime is left behind and heteronom- heteron- heterosexuality is 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 realized at least ideally. Um, so there is a whole debate around it. But I think in the first moment one has to. Uh, one has to uh, one has to 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 acknowledge or to, to see. I mean, at least I think that that Freud himself, in these first two chapters, makes a quite strong distinction, which of course also philosophically and and, and theoretically has creates possibilities. For instance, in terms of um, in terms of being non-heteronormative, uh, because then of course it's it's all different partial drives that have that in which there is no no. Uh, how would I say that? No priority of one drive over the other, and the outcome of this of this of this uh, evolution is very much dependent on con- contingent circumstances and so on. Without one ever being able to say, well, but you know, there is a there is a there is a natural good solution to how this uh, how these uh, drives should develop in later life. I don't know whether that's. I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right, and Laplanche does criticise Freud um, in, in that late essay on the three on the three essays. Mm-hmm. Um, though I think it's it, it's important to sort of factor in um, things that make it even more complicated. You're absolutely right about 1905, and when I teach the three essays uh, along with Little Hands, um, F- Freud, in a sense, sees Little Hands as exemplifying the truth uh, mm-hmm. uh, concretely yeah, of his thesis in 1905. Mm-hmm. But what is so striking is the differences between them. And, and in Little Hands is the centrality of fantasy, yeah, yeah. of yeah, unconscious absolutely. fantasy, yeah. Yeah. and the centrality of the parental figures. Mm-hmm. So um, it, 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 the whole account of Little Hands is deva- sexual shifts. Let's not use the word development because mm-hmm. it sounds too uh, teleological. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but the shifts yeah. mm-hmm. are done in terms of uh, Freud's absolute the detailed mapping of his mm. fantasy system of this little boy yeah. and the way in which that fantasy system is in intimate relationship to the parents yeah, and, the, and the demands the parents are making on him mm. which are partly come out of their own personal um, emotional and sexual feelings but also out of, out of the cultural norms of which they're the, mm. the bearers. And, yeah. and so those texts you know, are very close together um, yeah, chronologically yeah. Um, and fantasy is there in a way that it isn't. You, know, mm. you, you really have to look hard to even find the word, mm. and it's only in later it's footnotes okay. that it appears, really. Mm. It's mm. completely absent in, mm. uh, in, in 05. May I just shortly respond to that? Because I think that Little Hans is, is a very important text 
of course, because Freud, Freud is looking for clinical evidence, so to speak, of his theory of sexuality, and then basically discovers something else than he had expected. But the interesting of, thing with the sexual fantasies in Little Hans is that they are not so much linked to the autoerotic elements in Little Hans, which are quite obvious also. He wants to sleep with his mother because he wants to have skin contact. It's not about sleeping with the mother as such, but it's more about having the, the pleasurable feeling of skin contact, etc. Um, but the sexual fantasies are so not so much linked to his autoerotic experiences, but much more to the question uh, of the sexual theories. So the question, where do babies come from? And that sets in a whole... Uh, that sets a whole logic in motion in which also fantasies become uh, important. But for me, that's interesting and striking. He tries to link it. I mean, it's a kind of an, it's 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 a model enhanced with these sexual theories and sexual fantasies that could be used to explain, so to speak, the transition from autoerotism to adult sexuality. There is something of an attempt there. But it's, it's interesting that he introduces the whole subject of sexual fantasies much more with the, uh, linked to the issue of the sexual theories, which are theories and not the bodily sensations as such. So there is something interesting going on with the introduction of fantasy in Little Hans uh, in itself. I think this is also important. Um, this is not what we addressed now in our introduction in how you read uh, and how you translate the issue of sucking and thumb sucking. Uh, Strachey translates uh, Ludeln and Lutschen, the German Ludeln and Lutschen, as thumb sucking. And that, would, that could still, you know, trigger the idea that fucking, uh, sucking your... Not fucking. <laughs> sucking your... <laughs> sucking your thumb would, would, would be something like, you know, related to a fantasy about sucking the, the mother's breast, the, the thumb as a substitute subject, so to speak. Uh, this was not even a Freudian thing. But Freud uses sucking and not thumb sucking. Mm. And sucking is simply the very pleasure at the lips touching each other. It's about really about... Yeah, yeah and Freud, Freud in, in the 1905 edition takes the lips kissing each other as the model for, for, for infantile sexuality. So not a child at the, at the, at the breast of its mother, not thumb-sucking, but the, the lips uh, kissing each other. So it is autoerotic. There is no object, at least not, not in any essential way. Uh, of course, the object can cause pleasure, but it is not the, the drive that is not aimed at an object. Uh, isn't, isn't the question of the object also necessarily related to the question of seduction? Um, and there is a moment. I think it's only one moment, perhaps. It's exactly the moment I'm most aware of in the, the third essay, where seduction is thought of in. Yeah, yeah, there is. That's also the. I think, but if, if, if that's also the sexual object is suddenly turned around. The child begins life as somebody else's sexual object. Yeah, yeah. No, no. That, that's that's the, the the passages that Laplanche refers to. That the the, the, the child as ein gültiges sexual object as a real sexual object for the mother. But I, 
And he returns to that in Leonardo. Yeah, no, no, but I, I, I think these are, these are great insights uh, of Freud. The only, thing, the only worry I sometimes have, I mean, it's really, it, you can do, it's very interesting, this idea, and it's very important, I think, also clinically to, to realize, of course, that, that it is, that, that the, the child's sexuality is constituted in relation to the adult's sexuality, the adult not knowing even that he or she is, 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 uh, is uh, confronting the child with his or her own sexuality and so on. But it's very, it's, it's one line in, 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 in 80 pages, and to make a whole theory out of it is, is, is fine and interesting and important, but to say that that is Freud, especially since, Freud, since for Freud at the same time, sexuality is without an object, uh, adult or, or otherwise. So, but you're right. Yes, uh, Thoughts, questions. Um, in that case, I'll take one. Um, I, um, I'm slightly worried because what you've said takes away my ability to frighten students. And so, you know, when we, we have students come into the Freud Museum, they absolutely want there to be a complete difference between infantile sexuality which they don't believe in and adult sexuality and that is their one aim and whenever I'm talking about it and of course what I want to say and what I want to get them to kind of realise is that there's components of infantile sexuality and adult sexuality and by the way infantile sexuality may be more like adult sexuality than we really want to think so I like that because it kind of gets them a bit you know so, so what you're saying is that infantile sexuality is physiological. It has nothing else. Mm. It has no object. It has no fantasy. It has no social uh, life-like prohibitions or, or, or whatever. And the students just want to say that children. When I, how I say to them, I say to them, well, you know, doesn't do you think that children love their mothers? Do you think that children have got bodies that have uh, you know, essential feelings. Uh, do you think children have got minds where they're trying to figure things out? And do you think that those minds are trying to uh, relate their bodies to their mothers, to their feelings, you know, mm. and that there's some synthesizing capacity in the mind that these young children are actually engaged in that is connected to these feelings in their body that we call sexuality? So I try to kind of get the students to think, yes, there's something going on in infantile sexuality that's not just physiological or, as they say, sensuality rather than sexuality, mm-hmm. and that actually there is a sexuality in infantile sexuality. And now I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've just got to tell them, yes, you're right. You know, you're right. There is a complete difference, you know, and somehow we get from A to B. You know, I don't know how, but something... You know, mm. And the idea that there's something about, you know, this sort of sense of perverse, they're not even, wouldn't even call it perverse because the, you know, the articulation of pleasure around erotogenic zones, you wouldn't really even call that perverse. And if you say that sort of mosaic of pleasures is what then causes sexuality later on and Freud's heteronormative because, you know, Whereas actually what he's saying by making a developmental point of view is saying these two things are not divorced from each other. Mm -hmm. And we can, and by bringing in the developmental 
view. He's trying to show just how they inter- interact. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not convinced. I have to say. I mean, but, but you know, what, what, what do you? And I suppose the other question would be, how do you know the idea of the Quattripartite partite structure of the drive? I mean, does that? Was that the, the, the sort of four-part structure mm-hmm. of the drive? I mean, was that there in the first edition? And how do you then locate it? Since you've kind of taken away aims, of, you know, you've, you've basically taken away aims, you've taken away objects, you've taken away uh, a kind of, strength, you know, different strengths. Mm-hmm. You know, all there is, seems to be, is some kind of physiological being around the erotogenic zone, that everything, you know, and I can't see how that c- can be personally. But you answer. But maybe we have to admit this point also mm. by saying there is a reason, of course. Not, there's not only a reason why Freud conceptualized this infantile sexuality the way he did. He had he had certainly also a certain opposition in mind here, a critique of his predecessors. But the very fact that Freud felt himself forced to again and again add new material in the following uh, versions, especially 1915 and then also 1920 and 24, also is an indication that he himself felt uncomfortable with the idea of the strict separation of two regimes. And the clinical and the clinical material of Little Hans also pointed to a more complex situation that he found. Um, so you could also say Freud, and that's the bad defense, of course, but uh, you could also say that, that Freud himself uh, was in the end uncomfortable with the situation he had created in the free essays, mm-hmm. with this sharp distinction between the second and the third uh, but, part. Well, but I think there is another thing, that something you mentioned in, in your introduction, that is the importance of uh, seduction in 1905. We are used to think of uh, Freud giving up the seduction theory in 1897. So I don't believe my neurotica anymore. And that so that from then on he would think in audible terms. The, 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 the seduction, the stories of seduction that his patients uh, told him would in fact be distorted audible fantasies. Now, in our reading, and I think that the first edition really shows that, that's not, that's not, uh, that is not correct. Uh, uh, let me make a, a quick detour through Dora. The first, the first, in the first paragraph of Dora, Dora was published in 1905. It was written in 1901, as you know, it was published in 1905. The first uh, uh, paragraph, he refers to the Studium Hysterie. And he says, I'm going to show how what, I, what we said, Breuer and I, in the Studium Hysterie. But the studies on hysteria are from 1895. They were published before 1897. And so uh, before he gave up, his theory on seduction theory, and in the 1905 text, of course, he defends the seduction theory. He says in the first paragraph of um, in the first paragraph of uh, that, that that text, he says, um, "So I'm going to show that the, that the studies on hysteria were correct." That's in the first pa- and, and and a few pages. So and he he. First, a few pages later, he says, nothing that, that I, I quote by heart, so it's, it's not, uh, but nothing, that, that he says again, nothing that Breuer and I, 
uh, found in all this, nothing that Breuer and I indicated as crucial for hysteria, was absent in all the cases of hysteria, he says, that I, that I uh, treated, in between the publication of the studies and today, 1905. And he mentions trauma, uh, disturb, disturbing, uh, disturb, and, and the disturbed effect, and he says something I developed in the meanwhile that is uh, sexuality, uh, that is disturbances in sexuality. So, the, for Freud, I think the question, uh, what, what that indicates, I think, is the question for Freud still was why is seduction traumatic? That was in the 1905 edition, and it is traumatic because it is another different, because it is a regime. Because infantile sexuality is a different regime than adult sexuality. The child is not prepared to the type of sexuality that the adult represents, that adult sexuality represents. So I think he needs that. He's still thinking in those, that, that, that still, in the background is still the theory of seduction. And, uh, in the 1905 edition. And of course later on, uh, he, he, he will give that up. But, uh, so I think one has to, 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 to read or to understand what we read in the three essays and what we think that is in that is in there is is still the seduction theory, which is in the back of his. And of course, we forget that we don't see that. It's quite interesting when you look at the, at the inter, at readings of the Dora cases. The two passages I just mentioned are hardly mentioned. So that Freud himself makes a link between Dora, and in the same year he writes the first he publishes the first edition of the 1905 uh, text. So the, 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 the fact that, that Freud makes a link between Dora and the studies on hysteria is completely left out, is forgotten, and it explains, it's, it's, it, it also explains partially, I think, why he needs that distinction, because uh, that's why uh, seduction is traumatic. So I don't know whether that... Uh, that, that's not. I'm not saying that that, that that's. Uh, um, so I'm not defending it. I'm trying to. Yeah. to now to I suppose I'd say that. Um, I mean, obviously, the seduction in Dora is a very late. No, there are two. Well, there are two. There are. T- it, it, it completely. If it, 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 the structure he, he he shows there completely corresponds to what he says on on Emma in the project. It's a, it's a, it's a trauma in two times. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the, 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 the second one uh, revives the first one, and at no point, which is also something is, that is quite often not, 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 not stressed enough, I think, at no point does Freud question the reality of these traumas. Freud just takes them for granted. I mean, there are, the whole history of, of Dora is, 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 is structured around true traumas, and um, and. Freud at no point says, "Yeah, but this, maybe this is this is the, the expression of a fantasy," which is what he. Well, sh- he does say. No, yeah. there are fantasies. They are not the traumas themselves. There is there is the fellatio well, fantasy exactly. and so on, but the traumas themselves are not questioned. Co- and then, of course, when he's talking about the fellatio fantasy, yeah. he then and he then tries to deal with the kind of disgust that his readers yeah. might feel, yeah. and then and of course, and he relates it to the most sublime image that we can find in religion, in, in, you know, yeah. the, the child at the mother's breast. Mm-hmm. But and the so fellatio fantasy is created as when Dora is sixteen. Yeah. So it's a puberal yeah. fantasy. Yeah. It's not an infantile fantasy, which which goes along uh, our yeah, interpretation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 a fantasy that is created when she's already in puberty. So the infantile period, that is the moment when the first trauma arises, 
There is no fantasy. That's pre-representational, he says. That's a, it's a kind of pre-representational automatic rejection of sexuality, he says. So, okay, well, well, well that's just, so, 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 just say that um, uh, we must do a conference on the seduction theory. That's, going to, that's <laughs> definitely going to happen. It's been on the back burner for 20 years. Now's the time to do it. So we'll invite you and invite John and... And uh, Titi Laplanche is not with us. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, so. to, just to, to add, because to, uh, one of the things that you were saying uh, uh, was touched upon the issue of reaction formations. Uh, mm-hmm. There is infantile sexuality, there's pleasure all over the place, and there, there seems to be no boundary. Um, but Freud is not claiming that exactly, and uh, you touched upon this now with reference to disgust and shame. Uh, Freud introduces uh, these concepts in uh, 1905 in order to show that there is an, an inner limitation to, to infantile sexuality as well, which, which is not culturally informed, but basically consists of an organic reaction against a pleasure that becomes unpleasurable, uh, namely shame and disgust. I can't see how shame and disgust could be thought of as as organic. Well, that's what he says. That's what he says. Well, that's... uh, Literally, in the letters to... Literally, says. Well, in that case, he doesn't mean organic, so it's obvious. (laughs) (laughs) But the dams dams of shame and disgust and pity and so on. I mean, what's interesting... Not pity. Does he add pity later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He mentions pity in the three essays as, as, as one of the reaction formations. But, 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 not, but, but, but does he mention them as reaction formations? Sorry? Does he... I, I can't quite remember. Does he say that shame... I mean, he uses the idea of dams to... Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. But does he actually say reaction formations yeah. yes. at that point? Yeah. 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 And he says they are organically determined. Yeah. Organisch bedingt. Organisch bedingt. And the point... But we discussed it on the way that we were walking here. It's a kind of disgust and shame that have no, that is that is pre-reflexive, that has no real substance informed by culture. So it's not disgusting because there's a bunch of people that find something disgusting, or it's it, yeah. it's, it's really a spontaneous re- reaction. And for it says nothing more about, about it than this. Pity, pity was the other one. Yeah, but he only mentions it once. And no, no, but wait, no, 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 but in the English translation, three or four times, because mm. I think that Strecky tried to oh, make okay. it to make, yeah. <laughs> to make Strecky, it, to make it coherent. And, pity or guilt and, no, and I think there is a good yeah. reason, there is a good reason for that. I think, I, I, well, I think there is a good reason for that, because uh, um, you, you also, you, you, shame and, 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 and guilt are in themselves not... Um, and pity, no, it's pity, no, pity, no, no, you're right, I was thinking of morality. So he, he also adds at some points morality, yeah. and there uh, Strachey adds, not with... But with there, uh, not it's with the demands of morality, so it's actually, cu- it yeah, is a social... Yeah. Yeah. But, no, but he, he like, in, in the letters to Fleas, for instance, he explains this, this and also in the, in the, in the book on, on the jokes, that which, which is also from 1905, there he, he clearly links it to uh, these, these uh, reaction formations to, what, to, to our biological 
biological heritage. It's something that we, the fact that we, we started to walk upright and so on, the, the lose of the lose of, of smell, etc., uh, makes certain makes, uh, for instance, the fact that sexuality is linked to excre- excrements, etc., makes creates this kind of reaction formation. But and I think it's an, that's. It's interesting because it means that for Freud and these reaction formations are not created by culture, which is interesting because um, that means that sexuality for Freud is intrinsically conflictual. There is a conflict that... So there is no way to solve the sexual problems we have. There is a conflict in sexuality itself. And so the use of Freud in in neo-Marxism and so on, uh, Marcusen and so on, that's not Freud. Because it's not if we liberate, if, if we become a, more, a bit more liberal, that then sexuality is going to be only joyful. I mean, yeah. I, I wished it were true, but I, I, I think it's not. that's a fantastic place to stop, actually. <laughs> <laughs> sexuality is intrinsically conflictual. There's no way to solve the sexual problem. Absolutely. And I, and I agree 100%. We've come to an agreement. That's good. <laughs> okay. <laughs>